So almost as in uh, not quite, or very nearly, or just, just about. And the world is filled with the sad sound of those who almost attained. One of the most dynamic and incredibly talented musicians and songwriters and singers ever to grace uh, the pop charts was a young lady whose name was Whitney Houston. There will never be another Whitney Houston. There are people that have tried to be like her. There are people that, that, that do sing like her on some level at least, or to some degree. But she was one of a kind. Born in 1963, you may know this, she grew up singing gospel songs in her church. And of course, you know, she went the other way. She went, she went to pop. She never completely left her gospel roots, I don't think. At least she, she sang gospel songs throughout. But, but she was mainly known for, for singing, uh, singing a lot of pop songs. One of her biggest hits was a song that, that I remember hearing in the mid-80s. It was a song that said this, Didn't we almost have it all? And it was a song about broken love, about at least in her mind, I don't know if she wrote the song or if it was somebody else, but she sang it, made it popular. And in her mind, at least, there was the perfect love romance that she had with this, with this particular gentleman. And, and I don't know what happened. Somehow it was broken, and so the song went, didn't we almost have it all? That was, that was a fitting song considering her decade-long troublesome marriage to R&B singer Bobby Brown and her struggles with drugs, including cocaine. You know the story. Just a few years ago, she died in a bathtub by drowning with cocaine and other drugs found in her system. She was only 48 years old. Wouldn't be long after that where her very young daughter, just in her early 20s, would die by virtually the same fate. And a girl with a definite gift from God who grew up in church, they say she could hit, hit like four or five octaves with her voice and had all the advantages, was dead at 48 years of old, years of age, didn't we almost have it all? If only better choices had perhaps been made, if only she decided to stick with Jesus instead of going the other way. And I'm not pronouncing judgment on her, I'm just simply making a statement, uh, didn't she almost have it all? Because if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. I don't care if you've got everything that this world has to offer, what shall it profit a man? If he gained the whole world and lose his soul. Your soul is the most valuable commodity that you possess. And that is the one thing that the devil wants more than anything. But the regrets of what might have been is often enough mental torment to, uh, to just torment people. And the saddest regret of all is a life that was almost lived forgotten and a soul that was almost saved. Second Peter 1 and 10 says this, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. To make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now the Apostle Peter says, you know, he, he, he gave a long list of things that we should add to. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge temperance, etc. And then he ends it by saying, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. In other words, make, make sure that you're saved. Not 90% saved, not 98% saved, but totally saved. Make sure that, that you've got all the boxes checked, that you've got all, that you've got all the I's dotted, that, that everything is done right. Make sure, go over it once, go over it twice, go over it three times. Make sure 
that your, that your calling is sure, that everything is right, that there's nothing in your spirit that should not be there because all it takes is that 1% to slip in that can make us be lost. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul said this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receive with the prize. So run <clears throat> that you may obtain. So run that you may obtain because it's not a casual stroll through the park. It's a race to the finish line. It is a race that we cannot afford to lose. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 26. <clears throat> and he says this, I, am, I therefore so run, <clears throat> not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said that it is not just a race, but it's also like, like a boxing match. And Paul was constantly putting his flesh in his subjection and fighting it off. This is why he gave uh, the very idea and illustration of it being like a boxing match. Is that, you know, if we let up a little bit, you know, you're going to get a left hook to the nose. If you let your guard down even for one day, then it could cost you some pain, some long-term pain. And he said, lest by any means when while he himself had preached to others, he would ultimately be lost also. In other words, Paul was saying, while I have preached to others, while I worked miracles, while, while I started churches, and while I even wrote epistles, while I was even counted as one of the apostles, yet I was almost saved, but at the end I was lost. Now, if the great apostle Paul himself had to guard himself of being found in that state of almost saved, then how much more should we too guard ourselves against being found in that state of being almost saved? Almost saved, but not quite saved. Not quite there. Not quite having given fully our own best efforts, but almost saved. You know what? I'm running a race to win it. Amen. I'm fighting to win a prize, not just for the sake uh, of, you know, showing up to church, but I want to win a prize. I want to win this race at the end. I don't understand why some people leave the church. You know, I know that it's not perfect. I know that, you know, that people can offend you, and, and you know, people have left the church for a lot of reasons. But let me just, and, and I know leadership has even hurt some folks, but let me just point this out, that no matter what has happened in your life, the truth is still the truth. And no matter who has done it to you, the truth is still the truth. And it's the truth of what you must do to be saved. Mark 10 and 17, Jesus said this, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal. Do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way and sell what thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. To state the obvious, the rich young ruler nearly had everything. Nearly had everything. Let me point this out, that if he was in one of our churches today, he would likely be on the leadership group. A man like this, faithful, as far as we could tell from the text, to the synagogues, loyal to God, to the best of his revealed knowledge at that point. He likely had a prayer life of some sort, at least. 
he kept all the commandments. He looked apart. He dressed apart. He was well-known and liked in the community, and yet he lacked one thing, only one. He simply was not willing to give God everything. His possessions were worth more to him than even his salvation. And when Jesus tasked him with the ultimate test of discipleship, to sell everything, he simply came up short. And at the end of the day, he was almost saved. And lots of people are like this in the church today. You know, because the real test of Christianity is not what committee you're a part of or what leadership group you're a member of or what you belong to. It's whether you're sold out for the gospel and are giving it your all. Not just whether you're showing up, but, but, but whether you're prayed up. Amen. Whether you're filled up with the power of the Holy Ghost. Because we are in some dark hours right now. And we're in some hours that are going to present the church with a tremendous opportunity to be hope bearers like never before. And we've got we've to answer the call. We've got to be filled up. We've got to have words of life to give people. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 14 and verse 27 says this, where Jesus said, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build the tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that, beho- all that behold it be- begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. You know, when you begin your walk with God, it's, it's a lot like, like, like running in a marathon. If you have, you, I'm gonna say, I was going to say, you ever ran in a marathon? Well, you probably haven't. Ran in a marathon. I haven't ran in a marathon. I'm just curious. Has anybody here ever actually ran in a marathon, a full marathon? Walked, run. James has. Okay. So one person has. I think I've, I've ran maybe half a marathon a couple times, not an official race, um, maybe a 10K. But, but whenever, whenever you run in a marathon, like everybody starts off running. It's exciting. There's fanfare. There's music. There's banners. The radio, TV hosts are there. You know, they're panning out, you know, all the, all the crowd, everybody's going to run, and it's exciting. And that's kind of what it's like when you first get the Holy Ghost. Uh, is, is, it's exciting. When you first make a decision for the Lord, it's exciting. Or, or like whenever, uh, you know, like whenever little Jimmy first gets his call of God to preach. He's there, and somebody lays his hands on him, you know, and, and, and you know, says a word of, you know, of, of a prophecy over him. And he's, he's right there, he may be like eight years old. You know, may not even be old enough to understand what's going on. But he's lifting his hands and tears are rolling down his cheeks. And he says yes to God's call. And it's exciting. The pastor asked him, you know, a year or two later to preach his first little sermonette. And he gets up there and, you know, he you know, tells a cute little story and, and you, know, you know, quotes a verse or two. And everybody's exciting and that's just wonderful. And it starts off with a lot of fanfare. But fast forward about 30 years when little Jimmy has to bury his firstborn son. Because he's got to be broken before God for that anointing oil to flow. And I would almost guarantee you at that point, now that may not happen to little Jimmy, but at some point in little Jimmy's life, he's going to be broken. Because it has to happen. If you're going to be used, it will happen. You can bank on it. You can guarantee it. If you're going to be used by God, the greater you want to be used, the more he's going to have to break you. And it may not be your firstborn son. It might be something else. But at some point, you're going to have some pain and tragedy that's going to enter your life. And you're going to have some, some, some struggles. 
And in that moment, in, in that exact moment when, uh, when Jimmy, now, who now may be a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary at, at, at this stage in his life, in his you know, 30s or 40s, at that point when he's bearing his son, if you were to ask him, is the call of God worth it, he would probably say no. At least I would. And if we're honest, all of us would too. Because if we knew the cost of what it takes at the moment we said yes, many of us would be deterred from ever saying yes. If I'd known then what I know now, I may not have taken the journey. Now, we have a vantage point now, if you've come through the broken part, and, and you see how God uses you, and you see how God uses it, then you know, well, it's not just about me, it's about him, what he's making me into. And it is worth it, of course. We know that. However, it doesn't always feel worth it. And sometimes, you know, whenever a special anointing or call comes on your life, you know, I, I've even had, I even have had people say this, I wish that I wasn't so special. <laughs> I wish I was a little bit less special with God. He must love me a lot. He must really want to do a lot with me because, man, he's really socking it to me right now. Now, it's not always God that's socking it to us. Sometimes it's our own ignorance and bad decisions. But sometimes, I mean, a lot of times, really there's an argument to be made. Even God uses that for his own purpose. Salvation is free. But to be made into his image, now that is going to cost you. If I'd known then what I'd known now, I may not have taken the journey. If I'd known the pain, it was going to cost me to be used by God, I may have politely declined. Because we only tend to see the pain without the knowledge of what he's making us into. People often give up when they realize what true Christianity will really, truly cost them. Those disciples that were gathered around that fire, and Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? And it was Peter, you know, well, a few of them spoke up and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead or Elijah, but who do you say that I am? Peter, you know the story. You're Christ, son of the living God. Thou art Peter, upon the shock I will build my church. Man, Peter was excited about that. But Peter didn't understand it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you a lot, Peter. You're going to fail. You're going to come to the point of near suicide. You're going to weep bitterly. You're going to see your own shortcomings and failures. But after that, it's true, you're going to be used by God. But also, you're going to be scorched. You're going to be brought before rulers and before kings for my sake and the gospels. You're going to be, at the end of your days, Peter, you're going to be crucified. And history says upside down, they crucified him upside down. The journey starts off with much fanfare, quickly ends with the first sign of a trial or a rainy day. Because God is not interested in a casual walk in the park or playing patty cake. He wants us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Jesus told those same disciples that they would be scourged in their synagogues and beaten for his name's sake. He said, real Christianity is not something you pick up on Sunday and then, and then leave the rest of the week behind. It's something that you've got to leave your dreams on the altar to. It's something that you've got to leave your choices up to God, your choices of your life, even your life partner, even the person you marry, the way you live your life, every single day. You've got to pick up that cross and you've got to follow him. That's what true Christianity really means. Some people say, well, but I'll do this, but not that. I'll be pretty good. I'll be a 90 or 98 percent Christian. I'll come to church. I'll, I'll wear everything we ought to wear. I'll, I'll, I'll dress the part. 
I'll say everything, but, but this little thing over here, I'm not going to do that. And you know what? I feel justified in it because, above all, I'm pretty good. I'm better than a lot of people. It's no big deal, right? It's only 1% or 2%, right? That 2% may cost you to miss heaven. I don't want to miss heaven for the 2% that I didn't give up. I don't want to be almost sold out because 98% almost saved. Amen. 98% saved is almost saved. 98% sold out is almost sold out. 98% apostolic is almost apostolic. And almost saved is totally lost. To be almost saved is to be totally lost. Paul said this in another place, 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves how that Jesus Christ be in you except you be reprobates. Now, we know this was to a very carnal bunch of Corinthians. I mean, if there ever was a carnal church, if you ever have a, you know, if you ever thought, man, I just don't like this church. We just don't pray and it's just too carnal for me. You know, you need to read the book of Corinthians. You think we're carnal. My goodness. They had problems we don't even think about having in that church. And that, this is one of the Paul's churches. Pastor Paul, Right? Okay, so, you know, Bishop Elder Pastor Paul pastored a carnal church, and, and so it happens sometimes. Now, thank God we are not a carnal church. We are a very prayerful church, and I mean that. We're a unified church, and I thank the Lord for that. Um, but he told these Corinthians, examine yourselves. There's two ways to tell if someone's alive. This is from my non-clinical perspective, okay? First of all, if they're moving. I'm pretty sure every nurse... In this play, I don't know if we have doc- any doctors, but if they were here, I'm pretty sure they would agree with me. If they're moving, they're probably alive. Right? Everybody, all the nurses, I know we got a lot of nurses in the church. All the nurses would agree with that. But second of all, if they're not moving, <laughs> they're breathing, right? And sometimes, you know, you can't always tell if they're breathing, but there's one thing that people will do to check to see if they're alive, and that's listen, look, look for a pulse. Now, I understand there's more than one place to check a pulse. I think here in the neck, pressure points, you can check it here in the wrist somewhere. My wife knows how to do it. She's a nurse. And so if they're, if they're moving or, or if there is a pulse. Now, spiritually, let me ask you this. When was the last time you let the Spirit of God move you? When was the last time you were moved with God in prayer? When was the last time, not just moved, but overcome with the presence of God in prayer. If it's been more than one day, then it's probably been too long. Because the Apostle Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. He is what we need every day. He is the bread of life. He is the water that gives life to our spirits. And we need him every single day. We need him every single day. And so if, if, if you're not moving, then it's time to check your post because you may be spiritually dead. Because pretty good is the enemy of holiness. There's a lot of people, again, going back to the, you know, the, you know, the 98% people. I'm pretty good, but there's this one little area of discipleship that I'm just not ready to commit to. I'm not ready to cave to yet. What you're telling me is that you're almost there. And that can be a positive thing, unless your time is out. And when your time is out, you better not be almost there. You better be all the way there. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to give your all to Jesus. Now is the time. While there still is light. Amen. And that's where the rich young ruler was. 
was that. He was almost saved. I didn't come this far. I didn't cross this many rivers. I didn't fight this many giants. I didn't climb these many mountains to be almost saved. I didn't run this far to almost finish the race and, uh, you know, and, and collapse just within a few feet or a few yards of the finish line. I want to finish it all the way. I want to go with Jesus all the way. I want to be all the way saved because I do believe it's midnight, and I don't believe the Lord's going to tarry too much longer. We're seeing so many prophetic things come to pass right before our very eyes. And I don't know how this thing, this COVID-19 is going to play out. I don't know what direction it's going to go. But I can tell you this. God is on the throne. And, and God is going to bring us revival. And he's going to do everything he said he was going to do. But he needs us filled and spirit-led. He needs a spirit-led church now more than ever before. From Luke chapter 24 and verse 50, the Bible says this. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. I have wondered for many years why Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, but not all the way to Jerusalem. Because he told them, don't stay here. Go up, tarry. Don't, don't, don't tarry here, tarry in Jerusalem. So they had to walk. Now, here's the thing about Bethany is Bethany is really nothing significant. As a matter of fact, that's the point of it all. Is Not once... In the Old Testament, is Bethany ever referred to? Not a single time. The only thing that makes it noteworthy are the things associated with it in the life of Jesus. It was in Bethany that Jesus often found a home. Of course, you know that was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It was the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead after being dead for four days, one of his most noble miracles. It was here that Jesus resorted when he would often pass the night when he would not pass the night in Jerusalem, it was here they made him a supper just before his betrayal and right before his crucifixion. And, of course, in the district of Bethany lay the Mount of Olivet. And it was only about two miles from Jerusalem. The Bible calls this about a Sabbath day's journey. That was about as far as you could go on a Sabbath day. A lot of good things happened in Bethany. And the Bible says, again in Luke 24 and 50, and he blessed them. But we're commanded not to tarry in Bethany. But go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Lots of people want to stay in Bethany. Because, hey, good stuff happens there. Warm, fuzzy feelings and we're blessed. And life is good. And we're at 95%. We're almost there in Jerusalem. You know, I mean, 3,000 people, I don't know if you could have heard it from a few miles away, but 3,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs and speaking in tongues, I got to think that maybe they could have from, a mount, from the Mount of Olivet. Maybe it was that loud. So maybe they were just loud enough to hear what happened on the day of Pentecost. And they heard about it. They said, oh, man, we're so blessed to be so close to what's happening on the day of Pentecost. We're so close. We're almost there, but we're not quite there. We're just going to stay right here in Bethany. Bethany is almost to Jerusalem. But those who stayed in Bethany were never able to participate in Pentecost. 
They never heard Peter's message in Acts 2 about what they needed to do to be saved. Never saw the 3,000 people filled with the Holy Ghost in a single day. Never saw the layman healed at the gate beautiful. And many other notable miracles that happened throughout the book of Acts. Bethany is almost in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of people in Christianity today that have had a Bethany type of experience. They're blessed. You know, they obey some commandments. Jesus had visited their home a few times. They felt the presence of God a time or two. They may have even been healed a time or two. They live in a, you know, in kind of a world of Christianity where they're almost there, but they're not quite there. I'm just here to encourage you. There's a word from God today that's saying, don't stay in Bethany because you're very close to Jerusalem. You just got to get up and just go a little bit farther. You know, amen, two miles only takes you about a half an hour's journey, about a 30-minute walk, and you're there, and you're going to hear an old man by the name of Peter preach a message on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Christianity today is stuck in Bethany, but God is saying, come on into Jerusalem. There's a powerful experience waiting for you there. Hallelujah. God is calling you to do greater things than to go all the way and not stay in Bethany. There are greater things than God. I know people that have stayed in Bethany, even in the midst of apostolic churches, sometimes for decades. I know people that have resisted the Holy Ghost. I went, to, I went to school with one guy. We found out about two years into Bible school that he didn't believe that you had to receive the Spirit of God speaking in tongues. He was the one that was out preaching it, and hundreds were receiving the Holy Ghost. But he didn't believe it was an essentiality. Now he's not preaching the truth, unfortunately. Unfortunately, to this day, he's no longer preaching, although he is preaching, but he's not preaching the truth. He's preaching something else. Bethany. Just a comfortable place to live. And Bethany is where a lot of people are at in Christianity. You know, even people that have visited Jerusalem and have been filled with the Holy Ghost are comfortable going out of Jerusalem and going into Bethany. Because in Jerusalem, there's persecution. In Jerusalem, there's disciples that are gathering there. And, and man, i got to be under authority in Jerusalem. But I can live in Bethany just outside of earshot. And still feel like I'm blessed because, hey, it's the Mount of Olives and Jesus, Jesus was here. And, you know, and it's, 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 it's pretty close. I can stand on top of the Mount of Olives and I can see Jerusalem from where I'm at and, and I'm blessed. People even use that little hashtag on Facebook, I'm blessed. Got a job, got a car, got this, got that, got a wife, got kids, got health, got this, got that, got blessed. I'm in Bethany. But don't stay in Bethany because there is such a deeper experience in God. Amen. Don't stay to the place of where you're almost apostolic. You're almost sold out. You're almost there because God is going to endue his church with such a tremendous power. I promise you, I don't care how dark this night gets. I don't care if coronavirus turns out to be uh, 10 times the black plague. I promise you this, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Amen. And God is going to give the church words of hope. Amen. And he's going to fill us with grace and power and we will not be turned back we will not be deterred God is going to help us and he needs us out of Bethany, he needs us in Jerusalem, he needs us in that upper room where there's prayer going on he needs us there Jesus said it like this in another place, remember Lot's wife perhaps the greatest message he ever preached in three words, 
Remember Lot's wife. Of course, Lot's wife, you know the story. She, both him and both him, both Lot and his wife were commanded to go out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot turned back. Lot's wife almost made it out of Sodom. Turned into a pillar of salt. As far as we know to this day, there she lay. Still a pillar of salt, a remembrance to what might have been. Somebody who would almost say, you know, as far as we know, she, would, she was outside of the city. She turned back and saw it all happen. From that vantage point, you have to be out of the city to see fire coming down. Don't tarry. You know, the words of Abraham, the prophet, was, was don't tarry. You know, the words of the angel were, were don't tarry, don't linger, don't look back. Because there's nothing to look back to. Don't look back at the things that you had to give up. Don't look back and regret them and say, well, I wish I could do this or I wish I could go here again and, and I wish I could wear that again. Don't worry about all that. Just, you know, let that, let all that things, you know, let those things be down. Because when you start looking back, you start desiring them again. Lot's wife was almost saved. I don't want to ever, I don't want anybody to ever miss heaven that was almost saved. But inevitably, there will be. Revelation 20 and verse 12 says this, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in those books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's not forget, folks, that there is going to be a heaven and that there is going to be a hell. There will be a lake of fire and people will spend eternity somewhere. Your soul will go somewhere when you die. It will go somewhere. One day there will be a great day of judgment that is coming on this world, that this world is very quickly careening towards a day of judgment where he uh, that is greater than all will sit on that great white throne of judgment. He will judge the nations. You know, and Jesus talked about the view from hell where people in hell can apparently see what they missed. Luke 16 and 23 says this, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man, of course. In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, as far as I could tell, bosom was just a place of comfort. So I, I think that it was symbolic that Lazarus was in a place of comfort. But the rich man, of course, saw what he missed, what he almost attained to. Almost. Let's stand as we close. I know that, that we can't actually physically go to heaven. At least not right now. Now, one day we will. One day we will. We will go to that blessed eternal city in the sky. One day. If we're faithful by and by, we'll go there. And you may have loved ones that, that have, have gone on to that place. And, and you may miss them. And I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I, I just want to share this with you. Something that I do once in a while in prayer is I kind of visit heaven. And, and the only way I can describe it is I just put on some soft music, some worshipy music, usually soft piano, and I just close my eyes. And I just imagine going there.
what it's going to be like. So just for about maybe 10 minutes, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I just, just let my mind wonder and imagine what it, what it must be like. I've heard the testimonies of people, you know, one, one particular testimony of an elderly gentleman, you know, where he was saying, you know, he, he, apparently as he was passing, his passing final words were the lights, the lights, I can see the lights of the city. He was looking up, and he was getting ready to pass. You know, heaven has to have lights, right? I mean, it's got to have beautiful lights. I'm not talking about fancy strobe lights, but, but you know, it, it's got to have beautiful lights. Heaven, you know, I mean, the Bible does talk about it a little bit. It does give us kind of a description of what it kind of looks like, if you believe that to be literal and not figurative at the end of Revelation. Personally, I do. And, and if, if that's true, if, if, if John was speaking literally, then there really is streets of gold and walls that are made of jasper and, and things that are far beyond our imagination. But I just, I just close my eyes and I put on that music and I just imagine going there and seeing all my loved ones that have gone on before. I got, I got a grandmother and I got a great-grandmother I've got a pastor, Guy Rome, that I want to look up one day and hug his neck and thank him. He preached the message that I said yes to the call of God to. I just close my eyes and I imagine the lights of that city and seeing Jesus on the throne and the joy and the lights of that blessed city, that eternal city of God. You made it all. What is it going to feel like in that moment? And in, and, and in those 15 minutes or so that I kind of visit heaven, I can genuinely feel the comfort of the Spirit of God. And in that day, no sacrifice in that moment, no sacrifice that I ever made for His kingdom, no dream that I ever gave up and had to leave at the altar, will be mourned for or regretted in that day because I made it home. I made it home. Wouldn't it be a great blessed day when we finally made it home? When we get beyond the pestilence of this life, fears, market fears, markets going up and down and wicked rulers and you know, and what's going to happen next and the fears of this life. And, and we're fi we finally made it home. We never have to say goodbye to anybody. And we never are going to get sick again. We're going to see Jesus face to face one day. And we, and, you know, and, and we can say we didn't almost make it, but we made it. We made it. We were sold out for the sake of the gospel. We answered his call. We did everything. Heaven is not reserved for the 98% or the 99% disciple, my friend. Heaven is reserved for those that got their both feet on the rock and are spirit-filled and spirit-led. Hallelujah. Oh, I want to go there today with all my heart. I know you do too. Let your voices out for just a moment right now. Come on, let your voices out for a moment. He's here with us today. Maybe you need to give that 2% to Jesus. Maybe there's still that 1% or 2% that you still need to lay at the altar. I want to invite you today to come to the altar and do that this morning. There's never a better time to get out of Bethany than today. Because Bethany's a good place, but Jerusalem is a better place. 
Jerusalem is where he ascended to heaven. It's where the Holy Ghost fell. It's where the power fell. In the name of Jesus, Lord, bless us today. Be with us today, God. Help us to lay our all down on the altars, God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.